There is such a thing called conscious consciousness. In terms of consciousness. In terms of consciousness. What consciousness is. You're listening to Explain the Brain from the Mind Science Foundation. I'm Audrey Quinn. This season on Explain the Brain, we've talked a lot about the subconscious, the kinds of thought we can't really control. We talked non-conscious memories with Joseph Ledoux and unconscious bias with Anthony Greenwald. But now we're going to take a look at the kind of thought we can control and how we can do that better. Maria Konnikova is a psychologist and a writer for The New Yorker Online. She's also author of the book Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. It's basically a guide towards a particular goal, something she calls mindfulness. So for me, it's an idea of being present and really aware of everything in the moment. And that includes being aware of your surroundings um, and the people around you, kind of the sights, the senses are all engaged. So you can smell, you can hear, you're really kind of, you're really paying attention, but it's also being aware of yourself and the thoughts that are going through your head. Is that possible to keep track of that much internal chatter? Not always. Um, And one of the points that I try to make is that mindfulness is very costly and it's very cognitively demanding. So it's much easier to be mindless and that's how we are most of the time. And most of the time that's totally fine because we don't always need to be kind of our best, most aware selves. We don't always have to be on. In fact, we'd probably collapse from exhaustion (laughs) if we always had to do that. And so I think the first kind of the first step is identify when you need to really be paying attention. So, you know, do you really need to know why you're suddenly craving ice cream? Maybe if you're on a diet um, and then you can kind of try to unwind those types of subconscious triggers. Otherwise, no. Um, So you don't really have to be paying attention. If you're about to go into a meeting and it's a really important meeting and you need to make a good impression, you need to make a good talk, um, whatever, whatever it is you need to accomplish, then you can flag that, okay, this is going to be an important situation. I need to be present. I need to be mindful. And then you can expend those resources and you will have saved them up by being mindless a lot of the other time. And the other thing is that it gets easier over time. So if you're trained to pay attention to what's around you, you know, like Secret Service has to, has to notice everything, um, then it becomes more second nature. And you have a fictional character you use as a metaphor for this mindfulness. Tell me about that. Um, I use Sherlock Holmes. And the reason I use Sherlock Holmes, by the way, you have no idea how many times people have helpfully pointed out to me that he's fictional, <laughs> that <laughs> that I'm using a fictional model. And Thanks. yes, <laughs> so I have to say thank you very much. The reason I chose him is the real life model on which he's based is very much not fictional. Um, and that's Dr. Joseph Bell, who was um, an advisor of Arthur Conan Doyle's, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, when he was at the University of Edinburgh. And Conan Doyle was struck by the fact that Bell had these amazing diagnostic abilities. So he was able, for instance, during one class to tell that um, someone who came in was a retired officer from the Scottish Highlands. And that scene made its way into Sherlock Holmes when Holmes was able to identify Watson's military background just by looking at him the first time that they meet. And that came from a real-life inspiration. And Conan Doyle gave his fictional detective that same sort of ability because a detective, once again, needs to, needs to be mindful and aware 
um, his mistakes can be sometimes as costly as a physician's. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to take that fiction jab a little further because I always, I always thought Sherlock Holmes was fantasy that like nobody could put that great of insights together from so little information. But do you think maybe that's just untapped awareness that the rest of us could, could be using? Well, obviously there is a fictional element to it in the sense that Conan Doyle knows how his stories are going to end. And so he makes, you know, we, we know we're going to solve this mystery because it's Sherlock Holmes after all. But the thing I love about Holmes is that he's not infallible. And there are a few stories where he does make mistakes and he screws up, he gets the wrong person, he figures that it's a different story than the story that it ends up being. And so in that sense, he's more like us um, than not. And that's one of the things that I really love about him. I think that we do need to remember that he's fictional and that he is kind of this ideal. But that doesn't mean that we can't use an ideal model for how we can improve and become of better versions of ourselves, more mindful, more present, more observant, people who can make disparate connections. I think the techniques he uses are deeply rooted in science and psychology. And so even though we won't become perfect, because once again, he's fictional, um, I think that we can take his practices um, and apply them to our lives in order to start approximating that. And an approximation is a pretty good thing in this particular case, because when your model is perfection (laughs) or close to it. When did you start being such a fan of Sherlock Holmes? Um, Well, I had had a two-step relationship with him. Um, It first started when I was really little. Um, We used to have a family tradition where my dad every Sunday would read us a different book before bed. and one of the books that he read was Sherlock Holmes. And I remember it so vividly. And my memory is actually probably completely wrong because in my memory, there's a fire in our fireplace. We did have a fireplace. Um, and he, my dad was smoking a pipe and he did have a pipe. But it seems unlikely that all these things were happening every night we read Sherlock Holmes because lots of stories probably happened in the summer too. But in my mind, it's always this winter scene. <laughs> Um, And I remember being completely blown away by one particular exchange, uh, which is when Holmes asks Watson how many steps lead up to 221B Baker Street, and Watson doesn't know. And Holmes says, well, that's the difference between us. You only see, I both see and observe. And I must have been seven, eight years old. I just... I remember being stunned. I asked my dad to stop reading because I didn't know how many steps led up from the first floor to the second floor. So I proceeded to go upstairs and count the steps. Then I opened the front door and counted the steps down to the street. It was terrible for me to to feel like I was Watson. At that point, I was a little still unclear on the fact that Sherlock Holmes was fictional. So I wanted to make sure that when he asked me that I would know, I would know the number of steps. And I missed the overall point, obviously, which is kind of this difference between mindlessness and mindfulness and the need to pay attention. And I missed the fact that I didn't actually need to be counting stairs. But it really just, that particular scene stayed with me for years and years and years. So many, many years later, um, I was writing a piece on mindfulness. 
And this scene came to mind when I was trying to figure out how do I illustrate it. And I couldn't even remember what story it was from. That's how long it had been. So luckily we have Google. So, so I Googled, you know, Steps Sherlock Holmes. The full text came up and I reread it and it was just, it was beautiful. So then I started rereading the entire canon and I fell in love. You, uh, you went on to get your PhD in psychology at Columbia. Did you have a particular focus while you were there? Yeah, I studied self-control. Um, my advisor was Walter Michel, um, who's best known for the marshmallow studies from the 1960s. Um, I was his last grad student. So I studied actually the negative side of self-control. Self-control can be bad? Yeah, yeah. So normally it's very good. But in situations where you actually don't have control, so... For instance, the stock market. No one controls the stock market, right? There are external forces um, at play, and that's called a stochastic environment, kind of when when there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and in those types of situations, I found that people who are used to being in control don't quite realize when they lose it as quickly, and so they become more overconfident, and they learn less from their environment. So in something like the 2008 stock crash, people with low self-control probably figured out that things were going wrong earlier because... They saw the negative numbers, and so they probably pulled out and kind of did different things, while the people with high self-control um, likely stayed longer and kept doing the same thing because they said, I've got this. Um, I'm not going to look at the negative um, signaling. And we we did a number of studies with the stock market to try to play out that kind of dynamic. So that, more overconfident. That seems like it kind of goes back to mindfulness. Yeah, 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 it does. And it goes to a lack of deeper self-awareness, because if you're used to always being right and always having high self-control, it's really hard for you to acknowledge that there are situations where you're not in control, where you can't actually do um, this kind of thing. And, you know, that it's funny because Sherlock Holmes, going back to Sherlock Holmes, one of his vices is overconfidence. Um, so I think that I think that it actually plays in very nicely. Um, one of the things you talk about is organizing your brain attic. <laughs> How do you do that? Well, um, the brain attic is the is the metaphor that um, Conan Doyle uses or gives to Sherlock Holmes to use um, to describe memory um, and how we store, retain, organize information. And our usual brain attic, which Sherlock Holmes very kindly ascribes to Watson and says, Watson, you've got a lumberjack's attic. <laughs> Who knows what you keep up there? But that's a pretty good description of the way that we usually remember things. You don't make a conscious effort, right? Things just kind of come in and sometimes you'll be shocked at the random facts that you recall. You, know, you might remember something about you know, Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber, but you can't for the life of you remember something that was actually important and that you really wanted to remember. And so the way that we can try to make that better is to realize that we have the greatest control at the point of encoding, so at the point where you actually put something into your mind attic. So rather than just shove it up there or you know, just see what ends up up there, just toss it and see, does it stick? Does it come back down the stairs? When things are actually important, we can make a mental note and say, I need to encode this well. Well, how do you encode it well? In keeping with the attic analogy, you can say, okay, let me label it. First of all, I'm not just going to throw it up. Let me then put it in a place where I know where it is with similar things. Um, so can I relate it back to my past experiences? How can I integrate it into the web of knowledge I already have? Because 
every single point of encoding, so every single thing that you remember about something is a point of retrieval. So those will all become memory cues. So if you want to really remember a conversation with a friend, for instance, and you, ha you were in a coffee shop, to try to remember what was said, you can, first of all, obviously, your friend, you can put it with the memories of your friends, but also think about what were you drinking? How does it taste? How does it smell? How does it feel in your hands? Was there a warm cup of coffee? Did, did that warmth actually matter? Was it cold outside? Was it warm outside? Um, was there music playing in the background? You know, did, did the person next to you have a memorable perfume? Really try to engage all of your senses um, because then when you're trying to retrieve that memory, any one of those things will help you put yourself back in that moment and remember what was being said. And so that's the labeling and the storage that you can that you can try to apply to things that you really want to make sure you remember in the future. The, um, the other term you use in an interesting way is being an expert. What do you mean by that? What I mean by being an expert is being someone who has a lot of a lot, a lot of experience doing one particular thing. So a lot of times people will think that they should always follow their intuition. They'll say, oh, I have an instinct about that. The truth is we're really, really bad at knowing which instincts are correct and wrong, and we feel just as confident about both of them. And the only way that you can actually tell is, is there a basis for my intuition? So if I'm an expert in something, so Sherlock Holmes says, that person probably has a gun or that person doesn't look like they're very friendly, or I think we can trust that person. Um, if he says that, he has a basis for that intuition because he's spent hundreds and hundreds of hours honing that expertise and figuring out how do I read subtle cues in people and getting feedback because when he's wrong, he gets good feedback that he's wrong. And that's how you have to build expertise. It's not just if you and I, people watch in Central Park every single day, that will not suddenly make us an expert in being able to tell anything about people because unless we then run after them and verify our conjectures because we do need that external feedback. And so if you have that, then you become an expert in a particular thing. If you don't, you might think you're an expert. You know, oh, I'm such a good judge of character. That's no, no, I'm not, um, because I have a very selective memory. I remember all those instances where I correctly figured out that I like someone or don't like someone and don't know any of the disconfirming in instances because I never got any feedback. And who knows, I might have decided that someone was terrible and they're really a nice person. As, as I'm hearing these tips, I'm, cu I'm catching myself doing what I do with all kind of self-help kind of advice, which is, that seems like a great idea. Sometime I'll start doing that. <laughs> do, you think, do you think that these, the, the tips within your book could actually offer insight into how to better integrate this advice? Like, how, how do you become someone that hears something that seems th important and, and actually use it? Well, I think it's, a, it's, once again, it's a question of awareness. Knowing it is, you know, how is half the battle. That cliche is a, is a good cliche. Um, because once you realize that, you can start practicing being just more aware of your different tendencies, of your different sensations. Um, and it can help you not just remember, but also 
change things about yourself that you might not be very happy with. For instance, when I was writing this book, um, I started realizing how often, how tethered I've become to my smartphone and how just how often just I automatically will turn on the screen and just check, even though I'm not expecting an important email or nothing, but start being aware of that, then every time that that impulse arose, I could say, I don't need to be checking my phone right now. It's okay. Let it lie. Um, sometimes I would just put it in another room, and it got to the point where I actually forgot it once when I went out, which was terrible, and that was a harrowing, <laughs> a harrowing experience. I wouldn't recommend it for anyone. Um, but, you know, that it's a, it's a sort of thought trigger that you can train yourself um, to have, and it's pretty simple once you identify different things. So in terms of what you remember... If you take the time to kind of think about your priorities, you know, if you're on a desert island, what's the information you want in your head? What do you really want to remember? And then when those types of things come up, you've already pre-identified them. And so that makes it easier for you to say, oh, you know, let me reflect on this. This is really, really nice. I want to remember this. Do you have any favorite examples of how you've used this in your own life? (laughs) Um, I... I do. Um, and a lot of it actually has to do with people. Um, I've realized that I frequently will like someone because they remind me of someone I like and vice versa. And I, there's, been, there's been one particular instance where I really, really strongly disliked someone. And I just went off on what a terrible person this, um, this man was and how I couldn't understand why anyone was friends with him. Then I realized that he really reminded me of an ex-boyfriend um, after a lot of reflection and, and because people told me I was crazy. And we ended up becoming friends and everything was was okay. And my my initial instinct was so wrong, it's not even funny. Just because there was this very strong subconscious negative connection. They didn't look alike physically. It's not like they were the same type or anything like that. It's just that you know, sometimes there's something that reminds you, and that something will then color your entire experience. Well, Maria, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Maria Konnikova has a new book coming out in January. It's called The Confidence Game. It's about why we fall for cons again and again. To learn more about the Mind Science Foundation, you can go to mindscience.org. You can subscribe to Explain the Brain on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, write us a review on iTunes. Until next time, I'm Audrey Quinn for Explain the Brain. (laughs) 